What do you love about music? To begin with, everything. A great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. Welcome to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cutt. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Tonight on the world's only rock and roll talk show, we have got a live performance from indie rock songwriter Feist, and she is from, Jim, the rock and roll hotbed of North America right now. And it's a place that nobody's going to figure out. Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, yes, Canada is (laughs) rock and roll central right now. Oh, Canada. My goodness. Uh, Plus, we're going to have a review of the new album, a collection of duets by Isabel Campbell and Mark Lanigan, which prompted us to start thinking about some of the great Beauty and the Beast duets throughout rock history. And I'm going to have a Desert Island jukebox pick. But first, as always, we've got some music news. Thomas Dolby telling us that science is something that we are blinded with, and normally we don't think about science and music going together, but fascinating couple of studies in recent weeks telling us about how we are what we listen to. I mean, this is something we kind of already know, but these studies are telling us, yes, what you listen to is who you are, and using musical taste as a window into a person's personality. A study conducted at Columbia University by Dr. Duncan Watts, a sociologist there, and by Cambridge University by one Dr. Jason Renfro, a professor in social and developmental psychology. We will have both professors on the phone here to explain to us how music is us. On my part, Greg, it was a completely selfish reason to do this story. I saw it in uh, the Science Times section of the New York Times a week ago, and reading about these two, I mean, seemed to validate what we do. I mean, <laughs> you know, the one study seems to prove that people are sheep. They buy something because a lot of other people before them bought it, and that's really the only way to explain something like Mariah Carey, right? And then, you know, the other study saying that you can say what a person's personality is going to be like based on the music they listen to. Maybe not in our case, schizophrenics that we are, <laughs> but to put scientific grounding behind both of those things that we've just always spouted as truth because we felt them is uh, kind of vindicating, I think. Absolutely. Let's go to Dr. Renfro of Cambridge University. Welcome to Sound Opinions. Uh, thanks. So you had a group of 74 students, college age, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they compiled a list of their top 10 albums, and then you had another eight students judge who these people are simply by what they listen to. And you said and you said that the correlation was pretty remarkably accurate. Basically, we had these students come in and they completed a variety of different personality measures and then they um, finalized their top 10 lists. And so we were able to compile all of the songs on their lists on the CDs and then the second group of participants came in 
and they basically evaluated this original group of participants based solely on the music that they heard on their CDs. That's great. So, so they would sit down and listen to this mixtape CD. Yeah, we didn't give them any specific uh, instructions about what to do. They were just simply told that, you know, here's someone's 10 favorite songs, and all we would like you to do is to listen to them and record your impression. So give us a little clue about the conclusions here. The kid who's listening to, to Miles Davis and Coltrane and... Uh, I guess, Sonic Youth or some of the more esoteric choices as opposed to the kid who was listening to all country albums or all Mm hip-hop. What were some psychological conclusions drawn about the kind of makeup that these people had? Uh, Well, the people with the more eclectic music, they were generally perceived as being somewhat creative or intellectual, somewhat um, introverted, whereas the people who had rather narrow preferences were generally perceived as somewhat conventional or traditional, yet being somewhat laid back, trusting of other people. They were also sort of thought to value such things as salvation and national security, things that I suspect are associated with the impressions that these observers had about the political ideologies of these participants. Mm -hmm. And so it would seem as though uh, certain characteristics, in particular uh, how open-minded people are, is somewhat easily inferred on the basis of the music that people listen to. And this kind of touches on another aspect of some of this research, and that is the information that you know, we rely on when we make these inferences, how much singing it was in the music, things like tempo or emotional balance of the music, and, and how do these characteristics influence our impressions of a person. And so um, we found that impressions of how extroverted a person is was strongly related to how much singing was in the music. Mm. You know, rap music has a lot of vocals. Also, I think generally um, pop music has a lot of singing. And I think that perhaps the other thing to think about is that an absence of singing makes people infer that a person might be somewhat introverted. If it's classical and jazz music, which, Mm. you know, generally has fewer vocals, well, then perhaps people infer that they're introverted. So, Jason, what about you? Uh, If somebody was to do a profile on you, your your top ten records, and uh, what would they be able to conclude about you? You'll have to answer the second question, I think, you know, if if there's really any validity to the work that I've been doing, then maybe you could then generate an impression of me based on my ten favorite uh, records. Oh, there you go. Okay. Well, Um, we can try that. Yeah, we'll give it a shot. Lay it on us, man. Well, you know, I was listening to um, The Beatles quite a bit, Jane's Addiction, I think, was another band that was really important to me at that time. Um, The Cure. I mean, some of the things that were really kind of uh, popular at that time. Mm -hmm. But I would have to say that in college, I developed uh, a stronger appreciation for jazz. I became a really big fan of John Coltrane, Thelonious Monk. Well, I think that combination of the love for the jazz and digging and, you know, of course, the Beatles, the ultimate stone in the canon, the first stone in the, in the <laughs> pop music canon. You know, so clearly, you know, the intellectual and inquisitive disposition, but it was Jane's that did it to me because that says there's also this little perverse streak. So, you know, here you are in the academy in Cambridge <laughs> University where you're studying rock and roll. Yep, yep, yep. I mean, I, I think yep. I got it. <laughs> Thank you very much again. Oh, thanks a lot. It's been fun. All right, we have uh, Dr. Duncan Watts, a sociologist at Columbia University, on the phone. I am so thrilled, Doctor, because uh, it seems to me that the study that you did basically vindicates what Greg and I are often writing in our critiques, which is that people can kind of be sheep when they're buying music. That's, that's right. 
It's a, it's a sad fact. 14,341 participants. I gather they were all of college age? Actually, mostly teenagers in this particular study. And uh, you were charting what kind of music each of these uh, kids downloaded. That's right. So we had 48 songs that we had selected from basically unknown bands. And that was important because we wanted people to come in without preformed opinions. And then the participants would get randomly assigned to one of two groups. And in one group, they just saw the songs. In the other kind of condition, they actually also got to see how many times each song had been downloaded by other people. And so there's this sort of weak signal there that uh, you assume that if other people liked it, then you may like it more as well, that it might be better. And what we found uh, is that there were, there were quite significant differences in the outcomes between those two worlds. In the world where people could see what other people liked, the popular songs became more popular and unpopular songs were less popular. So there was a greater inequality in the outcome than in the independent world. But at the same time, it became more and more difficult to predict which particular songs would actually become popular. Hmm. Right, so that's sort of the paradox, is that when you have information about what other people like, the outcome sort of seems to be more uh, dramatic. Right? So you, you think the popular songs in the real world are many, many, many times more popular than, than average. And so you might think, oh, that's because they're better, right? and everybody figures out who's good and that's who we want to listen to. But it turns out that at the same time, it becomes more and more difficult for you guys to predict which particular bands are going to be in that slot of you know most popular bands. Sure, so you're not only proving that people uh, tend to be sheep, but also that, that age-old music industry uh, adage that, that nobody knows what makes a hit. That's right. In fact, it's what we claim in this, in this paper is that it's actually impossible to predict uh, with accuracy. And, and, and that's sort of a strong statement. You might think, oh, it's hard to predict what's going to be popular, because people are hard to predict, right? Who knows what someone's going to like? Mm -hmm. But actually, it's worse than that. Even if you know everything about what people like, you're still not going to be able to predict the outcome. And the reason is that people, is this hurting behavior, it's not just that people like certain kinds of songs and not others, they like what other people like. The herd mentality, too, uh, Doctor, has a tremendous application to what's going on right now in the music world with the sort of the, the chaos, the freeform nature of the Internet. How does music get discovered? How do you, all, this, right. all these thousands and tens of thousands of bits of music out there, uh -huh. many, many more listeners, how do we decide what's going to be popular, what's right. not? How does the herd mentality apply to that sort of situation that's going on? It's just the kind of information that we're getting is changing. You know, in the old days... The only you know influence was sort of channeled through the big record labels and and through through stores and through advertising. Now that there's a you know a sort of proliferation of music on on websites and in MySpace, it actually is sort of a little bit more like our experiment. There's a, a some range of selections and everybody basically gets a chance to vote on it. So it's in some sense it's more egalitarian because everybody now can pitch in rather than, you know, a few, you know, record executives deciding what is going to be made available to the public. But it doesn't mean that the outcome is going to be any more egalitarian. I don't know if you follow the pop music press, but the groups like uh, the Arctic Monkeys mm. or Clap Your Hands Say Yeah were, were these re records that were initially just released on the Internet, yep. floated out there for free, and lots of people see lots of other people downloading yep. them, and suddenly these bands have a career. Uh, you know, incidentally, speaking of the Arctic Monkeys, I um, just sort of heard about them quite recently. And so today, in anticipation of our discussion, I went online and listened to a couple of their songs. 
And, you know, I thought they actually kind of sounded a lot like the bands in our, um, in our experiment, mm. uh, which was interesting because many, you know, some of the feedback we got from people was that the music in our experiment wasn't very good. But I'm beginning to think now that the reason why people didn't like the songs is because they hadn't heard of any of them. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. So I, I really think that, that if you know a band is super cool and popular and great and is the next big thing, I mean, you're going to try very hard to like it. So, Dr. Watts, do you have any specific examples about uh, songs that were popular in the study? So there was this one band that was called Parker Theory that had a song called She Said, and they actually sort of consistently did better than average. On the other hand, there was another band that is sort of a great example of, of the other kind of unpredictability because it, it was number one in one world and, and number 46 or something in another world. Oh, was that the 52 Metro band? Oh, is that it? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's mentioned in the New York Times article. Okay, 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 yeah. I took my Yeah, it's impossible for me to remember the names of these bands. <laughs> um, All right, and what was the website again, Professor? Musiclab.columbia.edu. Oh, okay. And are the songs still up online? Yeah, in fact, the experiment is still running. Um, okay. Think about the Arctic Monkeys while you're listening to them and uh, and see if you think that the Arctic <laughs> Monkeys really is better. We've been talking to uh, Dr. Duncan Watts uh, from Columbia University, sociologist. It's It's been a pleasure having you, Duncan. Thanks very much. My pleasure. That, of course, is uh, Michael Jackson, although it's not the song we're going to be talking about in this news story. (laughs) Greg, we've been here on public radio 13 weeks now. We're waiting and uh, and waiting. And we have yet to have, well, no, we've yet to have uh, an absurd Michael Jackson story because, you know, usually that's at least a monthly occurrence. And this is certainly one that qualifies. So after Hurricane Katrina devastated New Orleans, Jackson comes out right away and says, I'm going to put out this benefit single and, you know, all the money is going to help save uh, New Orleans and we're going to get all the superstars. Everybody you can think of is going to come help me out. And that was a very long time ago. (laughs) Nearly six months later, we have not seen this alleged Michael Jackson benefit single. And the the thing that broke the other day in in the news was uh, his new spokesman, Sheikh Abdullah bin Hamad Al Khalifa. And I really should (laughs) turn... His new press spokesman. His new press spokesman. I really, I feel like I'm not qualified to do this story. I think we should get (laughs) Jerome McDonald in here from the world because I probably just slaughtered the Sheikh's name. But he is the son of the King of Bahrain and he put out a news update. Uh, So Jackson's benefit single, I Have This Dream, currently features uh, Snoop Dogg, R. Kelly, who, you know, has some some other things to worry about, you'd think. Sierra, Keisha Cole, James Ingram, and Jackson's brother, Jermaine, Shanice, the Reverend Shirley Caesar, and the OJs, a little old school there. According to the uh, the Sheik, the reason that the uh, single hasn't surfaced yet is because so many other stars want to keep contributing. I guess they're doing this. I don't think they're traveling uh, to the Mideast. I think that they're they're sending stuff over by mail. I don't know. Hey, it's, a, it's a long way from We Are the World in uh, 1985 when he and Quincy Jones got, like, the who's who of the pop music 
music spectrum. You know, everybody from Bono to Stevie Wonder, right, to Bruce Springsteen, to all in one place in, at one time, yeah. as the video memorably captured. You know, check this. your ego at the door, and now he has no ego to give because nobody wants to record with Michael Jackson and, anymore. And you know, few people want to go to the Middle East right now with all the turbulence, except Jackson, who's who's living there and hanging with the Prince and, and the Sheik. <laughs> According to the Prince, Jackson did a wonderful track. His voice was phenomenal. So not only is he a prince, a pop star manager, but a, a critic. A music critic, uh, yes. He went on to describe the song as a message of peace and help and caring. It's a song of total oneness. And I don't know about you, but I am counting the minutes till I get to hear it. We hope to debut it here first on Sound Opinion. It's the only reason those people are hanging on in New Orleans. <laughs> the only reason. That is Broken Social Scene from Toronto, Canada, which has been identified as one of the hot music scenes in the world right now. The reason we're talking about it, our uh, next guest on the show playing live for us will be Leslie Feist from the band Broken Social Scene from Toronto, Canada, one of many artists from this scene that are uh, bubbling to the surface and the underground artists of these scenes in Vancouver, Montreal, Toronto becoming mainstream stars in the last 12 months. Well, the fact that the mainstream is paying attention means that Canada is probably already on the other side of the hump. These things happen regionally. I mean, every great city in America or Canada has a music scene, and sometimes it gets more attention than other times. The thing about Canada, though, though, Jim, is that it's sort of become a punchline. This is the country that gave us Celine Dion. This is the country that gave us Shania Twain. Let me quote uh, Rob Williams, who is a critic at the Winnipeg Sun. After decades of shame and humiliation, (laughs) Canadian music fans can finally travel abroad and hold their heads high. Wow. Critically acclaimed indie rock bands like Broken Social Scene, The Arcade Fire, New Pornographers, Feist, The Weaker Thans, and The Deers have made it safe to admit you're from the country that unleashed Celine, Shania, and Brian on the world. Brian referring to Brian Adams. Brian Adams, yeah. So even the journalists in Canada acknowledge that it's got kind of a hinky past when it comes to foisting great music upon the world. All that seems to be changing in the last couple of years. Out of Montreal, you've got a band that everybody seems to be talking about these days, The Arcade Fire, one of the biggest indie rock success stories of the last year. And for my money, they stole the show at Lollapalooza last Absolutely. year in Chicago, and, and everybody's really waiting for what's going to be their first major label album. Arcade Fire, joined by Wolf Parade, The Stills, Stars, which is actually made up of Toronto residents, but they all moved to Montreal and made their records there. I hear they get very sensitive when you say (laughs) somebody's from Toronto and they're actually from Montreal or vice versa. Vancouver, Victoria area has produced the new Pornographers, Destroyer, Black Mountain, Hot Hot Heat. Toronto, you've got the Constantines, Hidden Cameras, Broken Social Scene, Metric, Death from Above 1979, Feist. Literally dozens of bands that are being name-checked by hipsters as some of the coolest indie rock bands in in the world right now. Well, we definitely want to do a whole show on what's going on in Canada at some point in the future. But we do have a great performance and interview with Leslie Feist. We'll be back on Sound Opinions on Chicago Public Radio in a minute, and we'll have Feist live in the studio.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Codd of the Chicago Tribune, and Jim DeRogatis is my partner from the Sun-Times, and we're here with Leslie Feist, otherwise known as Feist. She's got a solo record out, and in addition to her uh, tenure in Broken Social Scene, a uh, indie rock band from Toronto, and a uh, collaboration with her former roommate, Peaches, which is, how would we describe Peaches? Well, if people aren't familiar with Peaches, I mean, that's kind of an electro, electro clash, I think, is what generally is used. To, but, you know, she's kind of a, a hip-hop underpinning and this avant-garde electronic stuff and uh, very, rapping more than singing. Very in your face. I mean, Whereas it's very broken, confrontational. Yeah, she's just Peaches. There's no other word yeah. for Peaches. I go with that. She's yeah. <laughs> Beyond so, description. So, Feist, you've been across the board. You've done everything there is to be done in music, it seems like. Indie rock oh band. Oh, my God. I don't this kind of performance yet. art thing. Now you're doing sort of a, a more subdued singer-songwriter kind of uh, approach. What haven't you done? I don't know. There's plenty. I mean, up until a couple of years ago, I felt silly even saying I was a musician sitting next to someone on an airplane in case they were in some philharmonic. And they'd say, well, what do you do? And at that <laughs> point, I wear aerobic outfits and jump around <laughs> with a sock puppet. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, Peaches does have this this element of absurdity in performance art, which yeah. is why I think anybody who only knew you from from that context, or for that matter, who only knew you from from Broken Social Scene, was really surprised by Let It Die. It's your debut album. It's had this long, slow build, kind of garnering buzz on the underground. Uh, it's sort of cocktail exotica, you know, <laughs> uh, like cool lounge music. I mean. Jewel, if Jewel had taste. Good Lord. Can I? Where's the door? Where's the door? <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, what genre would you say you're working in? Well, I think it's always harder to put a, any kind of title on something that's coming from the inside. You know, I don't mm-hmm. really know what, where it, once it comes out, where does it land, you know? And, and depending on the country and the ears listening and the person and the context they're going to be comparing to of all the records they've had in their life, every person has some other, you know, I, I've actually been able to completely detach myself with a good ironic distance to to laugh at all the descriptions I've heard yeah. because people <laughs> compare it to stuff I've never heard and then stuff I have and I like you know every every instance is yeah. is really funny for me because well that's fair enough I think you know a lot of musicians do feel that way but if you had to say someone that you most emulated that you wanted to oh geez well, I don't know. I, I think emulation, you, 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 lose the, you lose the battle even before you begin. I mean, sure. probably there's – everybody, we're all just sponges and we take in the things that we listen to and read. And, you know, I, I always say that my musical influences are, are, are equally interactions I have with people on the bus if they're kind to me or really <laughs> yeah, horrible yeah. to me. You know, that stuff all finds its way come, – it comes out again in some – but so I'm, I'm sidewinding your, your <laughs> well, no, it's you know <laughs> dodging the question, but doing it charmingly. It, it started out uh, exactly as you're sitting here, really, with a guitar and your voice and a four-track tape recorder, basically. I mean, that's yeah, exactly. All that Peaches stuff and the broken social scene stuff, and and a lot of other collaborations I did in Toronto. All that was happening simultaneously, and on any given weekend, someone could happen upon the little coffee house kind of place called Say What in Toronto, and I'd be playing a solo set with my four-track with some backing tracks that I'd recorded at home that afternoon and solos show. And then on Friday with By Divine Right, this rock band that I was in for a few years where I was just a rhythm guitarist and I didn't sing and Mm -hmm. I got to just jump on top of the monitors (laughs) and play rock guitar. And they could walk into that on the Friday and then Saturday it could be in an art gallery with Peaches and those those early days. And that could happen any given weekend. Well, before we, people who haven't heard you, why don't don't you play us a song? Okay. First song on the record, 
and it's called Gatekeeper. Well, it's time to begin as the summer sets in. It's the scene set for new lovers. You play a part, painting it and start but each gate will open another. June, July, and August it's probably hard to plan ahead. June, July, and August well, it's better to bask in each other. Oh, gatekeeper seasons wait for you not. Gatekeeper, you held your breath, made the summer go on and on. Well, they tried to stay in from the cold and the wind making love. Making a dinner Only to find that the love that they grew in the summer Well, it froze Oh, February, April, said Don't be fooled by that summer again February, April, said Will I have for the year where we'll never be friends Gatekeeper seasons wait for you not. Gatekeeper, you held your breath, made the wind go on and on and on and on. Gatekeeper, song gatekeeper from um, solo record from feist let it die that is uh really taken on a life of its own i think it was released about a year ago in america and it might have been released before that in canada i think right yeah and even before that in europe <laughs> it, came, it came out in france first right it came out in france first and then about two months after that the rest of europe which is you know an unusual thing uh for the record industry they'd like to have that flash in the pan kind of five-week build and then you forget about a record and in the case of your record it seems like it's a very much of a word-of-mouth thing it's spread slowly but exponentially and uh the next thing you know you're doing a headlining tour playing you know thousand seat clubs and theaters around the country weird it's very impressive it is weird <laughs> yeah it's weird and and maybe on the musical side it's just such a relief to, in a way, have started from scratch. You know, I, in Europe, you get to a certain point and then skipped over to Canada, and and then you're in, like, the little bar again. And that was mm-hmm. always – I really liked that. It was really a lot of humility necessary <laughs> and a lot of yeah. – And, you know, it also helps you keep the music fresh because you never get too comfortable. And then I had to tour solo for a long time because in America, when it first began, I was opening for people, and I'd come by myself. And, and that it's all been really interesting because it isn't like – playing the same song the same way for two years. It's yeah. always been readjusting to suit Well, the it's the purest you know? way, you know, no hype involved. It's like, I'm either going to win this crowd over with these songs or I'm not. <laughs> yeah. 
America's been kinder to me than when I was in Can- like launching from Canada because mm-hmm. I did make an an oft forgotten and I'm even trying to forget it record <laughs> in '99 or '98. Mm-hmm. I I put out a record and then you know was booking my own shows and f- sneaking across the border and coming down and playing and it was really hard. It's a nebulously enormous country and you don't even know where to begin and. And if you get your foothold in one city, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to help you 100, right. 100 miles to the east from there. You know, it's Well, and now you um, obviously spend a lot of time in Canada, but you consider yourself a Parisian? No, I, I guess I consider this album a Parisian. And, mm-hmm. you know, this, it was born there. It was raised there. It's the Paris album. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, but me, no. I, I, I've been there for about three years now, but the language barrier, you know, you're – it's like the world through saran wrap, you know. You never, never really get. To, if you can't have a conversation with the old lady selling you your carrots, then you're not really getting a sense of the city. So, yeah, yeah. It, uh, songs, the, the songs that had sort of been percolating for those years uh, that ended up on "Let It Die," uh, like the beauty we just heard, that gatekeeper song. Was that something you never saw fitting into like a context like a broken social scene? They would never yeah. handle a song like that. That just wouldn't make sense for them. There isn't, I mean, except for Kevin Drew, I'd say there's very few songs that come completed into the broken world, you know, and Kevin will write a song and bring it in, and it always makes sense, I think, because he's the El Jefe, we call him, the king of broken, really. he, <laughs> What he brings makes sense because he's he's kind of the overlord and, and has determined a lot of the way broken sounds. So, But, yeah, the, the four-tracking I was doing at home was, that's what led us to the studio was, those those four track demos and I didn't really envision anything else. I definitely wasn't going to bring them to Broken because it wasn't mm. not the the flavor of Broken. I didn't mm-hmm. really know what else to do with them, and I was actually happy with them in the form they were living on the four track demos. So so this album is uh, we should note Let It Die is, is half covers and half originals. It's kind of cool how you worked the covers in and made a kind of a very integrated album with a real kind of a story arc to it. I thought you know kind of this relationship with the covers sort of filling in some of the gaps in your originals. So you obviously had plenty of originals to fill an entire album. Feist is kind of vaguely looking at you. Yeah. Like, yeah, Yeah. that would be the sort of theory a rock critic would come up with. uh, And what do I do? Do I agree with him? But look, Are you buying that? The disparity, though, of the covers is what intrigues me. She's not buying it. Ron Sexsmith and Bee Gees. And then, you know, that uh, I love that uh, traditional song, When I Was a Young Girl. Yeah. Uh, Hopefully that's not a part in the storyline because that's uh, about dying from syphilis. So (laughs) (laughs) I did look at it like a timeline. And it all happened after the fact because, of course... It wasn't until later that I, I was even meant to think about it. You know, when you're making the record, you're not like, okay, how's this all? You know, I, I was just a bit naive about it, and I, I just made it. We just put the records on in the order that they sounded the best, and then later I, in situations like this, where I kind of have to think about it from the outside and what mm-hmm. actually came, you know, what it is as it exists in this disc form. You know, and it's true. There's a timeline and. And each song kind of fills in a, a moment of like that first blush of true hope and total belief and in immeasurable energy and focus mm-hmm. on someone else. It just like gives you all of back focus on yourself, all that great stuff about the beginning. And then every single step from that first <laughs> inkling of, oh, wait a minute. And then the the and then all the way to bittersweet and then when there's just no sweet left next to the bitter <laughs> anymore. Just bitter. It's just pure bitter. Just bitter. Know? I'm not off my rocker completely. <laughs> She's just being nice know. to you. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you play us another song, Leslie? Well, since we've been talking about the covers, I I think I'd like to play this Ron Sexsmith gem. But it'll take a second to tune it up. 
I heard you saying before when you were sound checking uh, that you haven't. You bought this guitar at a pawn shop and never changed the strings at all? Yeah. I'm, wow. Well, I got it. Actually, Peaches and I were in a pawn shop in Berlin, and she was buying a bass because now this new rock approaching yeah. the next album. And I wanted to buy a sampler, which was. It was very funny. We were switching roles. I wanted a sampler, yeah. and she wanted a bass. <laughs> and there was this guitar that I just was playing while I sat there. And then when I left, I was about to leave, and the guy said, I, I give to you this guitar <laughs> mm. for $40. So I took it, and it sounds so beautiful that I didn't want to change the strings in case that tone is only to do with these strings. Here we go. Secret. Let 
Feist and Secret Heart, a song by Ron Sexsmith. On Sound Opinions on Chicago Public Radio, I'm Jim Diragatis. He's Greg Cott. We're hanging once again in the uh, Jim and Kay Maybe performance studio. Um, how do you choose a cover? It was actually the first time I had a conscious realization about songwriting was listening to his and realizing that, well, that's a form of art. You know, that seemed so artfully simple and maybe in the same way that standards from the 40s are, they speak to everybody and you know, Brill Building style, Tin Pan Alley, whatever, you know, just kind of song, songwriting that feels like it'll still make sense exactly in, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in however many years. And there's an invisibility to the narrator, you know, and it's it's also super personal, but nothing is specific to him, you know, and mm-hmm. I don't know, it's like he's risen above these really intimate circumstances, but he's like four feet hovering above them. I think a great, a great songwriter kind of leaves the space for you, the listener, to complete the experience. Yeah. Cool. It's been a real pleasure having you here, Leslie. Thanks for coming by. Thanks. You guys, too, the Siskel and Niebuhr of radio. <laughs> that's, that's the shtick, <laughs> although I think we'd probably rather be the car talk guys now. <laughs> You're listening to Sound Opinions on Chicago Public Radio. I'm Greg Cott of the Chicago Tribune. My partner is Jim DeRogatis of the Chicago Sun-Times. We're going to be back with Beauty and the Beast, the yin and the yang, the duets that have made rock and roll so enticing in the last few decades, from June and Johnny Cash to uh, the latest one, Isabel Campbell and Mark Lanigan on Sound Opinions. Listening to a really cool duet there 
by Isabel Campbell and Mark Lanigan from a new album called Ballad of the Broken Seas. If you're not really familiar with the indie rock underground, both uh, Campbell and Lanigan are stars. Isabel Campbell was uh, a member for a long time of Bell and Sebastian, who we reviewed a couple of weeks ago. She was the cellist and the uh, backing vocalist, uh, sang harmony along with the leader of that band, Stuart Murdoch. And Mark Lanigan was uh, leader of the Screaming Trees and has made a bunch of fine solo records. A lot of people say as good a vocalist as Kurt Cobain, and Cobain really looked up to him in Nirvana, often imitated him. Like Cobain, that kind of gruff, gravelly, whiskey-stained voice, whereas Campbell, obviously, is very wispy and beautiful and gentle, as was uh, Bill and Sebastian's style. An unlikely pairing, an American from the Pacific Northwest and a Scottish woman, you know, a beauty and a beast. We're going to look at this record because it's really intriguing and give our opinions about it, but this got us thinking about other great pop pairings, right, Greg, of beauties and beasts. Absolutely. This goes back decades, Jim, this whole concept of beauty, feminine innocence, the girl next door, corrupted by the older, wiser, more decadent, (laughs) older guy. Right. And uh, there's been a history of these kind of duets, not only in pop music, but country and other genres as well, including uh, hip-hop. One great example, I think, is the early 70s duets between Graham Parsons, the godfather of the alternative country Mm -hmm. uh, music movement, and a young folk singer from Washington, D.C. area called Emmy Lou Harris, who went on to become one of the great country singers of all time. But before she became this great country singer, she was this kind of innocent folky playing the Washington, D.C. scene. Graham Parsons, this guy who shared smack, heroin, with Keith Richards and the Rolling Stones, adopted little Emmy Lou, brought her into the fold, taught her about country music, and showed her the ropes, so to speak. And you can sort of hear the combination of their voices, the beauty and the beast, on this classic track from one of Graham Parsons' two solo records. It's a cover of a song originally done by the Everly Brothers, and it's called Love Hurts on Sound Opinions. Love hurts, love scars, love wounds, and marks any heart, not tough, nor strong. Enough to take a lot of pain, take a lot of pain. Love is like a cloud, blows a lot of rain. Love Well, Graham and Emmy Lou are a great one, Greg, but uh, I don't know if they ever had a romantic relationship. But one of the things that's really made these Beauty and the Beast duets spark through the years has been when there's a lot of sexual tension. And I think uh, that's never been uh, better illustrated than in the music of Serge Gainsbourg, who uh, uh, was this mid-60s French raconteur, gruff-voiced kind of uh, later-day beatnik poet slash hippie and playboy. You know, he made a couple of really interesting albums that sort of touched on world beat at times and others that touched on the kind of lounge exotica, but the pop records he made, he always sought out wonderful, sexy women to sing with, and it was definitely the Jekyll and Hyde thing. That was one of his favorite images, with him, of course, being, you know, the horrible, (laughs) ugly monster Mr. Hyde, and usually Jane Burke who 
was an English woman, very young and beautiful and, and an incredible voice, the sweet young thing that was going to be corrupted by the evil Frenchman. But the song I'm going to play actually features uh, Bridget Bardot, Bonnie and Clyde. And this is a classic. It's been covered so many times. And, and uh, in the mid-60s, there was uh, this fascination, of course, the film Bonnie and Clyde and, and what it said about young rebels fighting the system, the psychosexual mysteries of their relationship, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And boy, I don't understand French, and I have no idea what the actual lyrics of this song are, but I know what it's about. Moi, lorsque j'ai connu Clyde autrefois, c'était un gars loyal, honnête et droit. Il faut croire que c'est la société qui m'a définitivement abîmé. Bonnie and Clyde. Bonnie and Clyde. Chaque fois qu'un policeman se fait buter. <laughs> Gotta love that. Images of uh, Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway in that movie suddenly flashing before my eyes. Let's uh, flash forward a little bit, Jim. Uh, this idea of uh, pitting the gruff-voiced male singer with the innocent female singer rules the charts even today. Most notably, I think, in the music of the rapper known as Ja Rule, who has got one of the deepest, darkest, pitbull deep voices I have ever heard on a hip-hop artist. And he was very canny in pairing himself up with a uh, dancer known as Ashante. Mm-hmm. Um, number one hit in uh, 2001 with Always on Time. A number four hit in 2002 with uh, Down for You. And in 2003, a number two hit with Mesmerize. And here's the first one that really got this duo off the mark. Ashante with the sweet R&B vocal. And then Ja Rule with the gruff rap on Always on Time. Greg, I mean, it's one thing to dig deep for, uh, you know, examples of a genre or, or style we're illustrating, but uh, I can't believe you just played Ja Rule on Sound Opinion. I'm not endorsing it. <laughs> Trust me on that one. Not endorsing it. Not giving it. it your stamp of approval? You're but just... the point being, this formula has worked for decades. Oh, I'm going to give you a better example of the formula. I think the classic of the genre, and this is going to take us back to our new uh, example, is Nancy Sinatra and Lee Hazelwood. Hazelwood, this kind of a two-bit Vegas cowboy, heavy on the shtick, famously paired with uh, Frank Sinatra's punkish, rebellious daughter. She had a bunch of, of hit singles. Of course, uh, these boots are made for walking at a time when Frank was being shut out of the pop charts by the Beatles, and he was not too pleased. <laughs> I think there was a little of that father-daughter weird psychosexual oh, yeah. chemistry going on, because Hazelwood was a lot older than Nancy Sinatra, but there's something magic happening in this song. You know, Hazelwood is the guy who's crawling out from under a rock, surprised to find himself still alive in this song, whereas Sinatra is the uh, very personification of beauty, innocence, running through the fields, Phaedra. 
the goddess. Uh, this, of course, is Some Velvet Morning by uh, Nancy Sinatra and Lee Hazelwood. Some velvet morning when I'm straight I'm gonna open up your gate And maybe tell you about Phaedra And how she Taking a look back at the history of Beauty and the Beast duets, Greg, the reason I wanted to end with Some Velvet Morning is I think very consciously Isabel Campbell and Mark Lanigan took the model of that song for the track we're going to play now, which is called uh, The False Husband. It's one of the standouts uh, among several on, on this new record, Ballad of the Broken Seas. They said they were particularly inspired by uh, the Serge Gainsbourg, Jane Birkin duets and the Hazelwood Sinatra songs. And I think you can hear that when you hear this tune. Jim, Ballad of the Broken Seas, very much in this tradition that we're talking about, the Beauty and the Beast, what with a twist. You always have this combination of the old gray wolf combining with this angelic innocent, and usually it's the guy pulling the strings. He's kind of directing the shots behind the scenes. Sure, the Svengali. Uh, In this case, Isabel Campbell is the one doing all the string pulling. Yeah, she wrote the songs. She's a songwriter, she's the producer, she's the one that called Mark Lanigan's and, hey, I want you to be my singer. Mm -hmm. So she's doing a nice little reversal here. And I think that adds just a great modern touch. I love the way the cinematic settings in these songs sort of evoke those spaghetti westerns of the 60s. You know, the funeral bells, the shivering strings, the whip cracks. A real <laughs> whip used in Ramblin' Man. It really is kind of a twisted uh, take on this whole tradition, and I think it works wonderfully well. On the, uh, the trademarked and patented Sound Opinions rating scale, Buy It, Burn It, Trash It, it sounds like this is a buy it record for both of us, no? Yeah, it absolutely is for me. I think it's a great record and a, and a great take on this tradition that we've been talking about. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. You remember? We were shipwrecked together. Stranded, I'm so far from home. Stranded, yeah, mama. 
Each week, one of us goes to the deserted island and takes a record we can't live without. And this week, Jim DeRigatis has turned to pop a quarter in the desert island jukebox. It is, Greg. Thank you. It's been 13 weeks here on Chicago Public Radio, and despite uh, you playing uh, searingly pornographic, uh, very unfaithful <laughs> records and, and me playing who knows what, we've yet to uh, get ourselves kicked off. I'm going to try this week, though. <laughs> but th- I have a justification for going to the place where I'm about to go. You know, we were talking about Canadian bands and how Canada's never gotten much respect. Uh, this is a Canadian band, uh, and it's never gotten much respect from uh, snobbish people, although uh, there's kind of a reevaluation going on. But I'm going to play a song by Rush. You know, early in their career, after they came together in the the very late 60s up in Toronto, they were a very good band early on. They got even better uh, a couple of albums in once the master drummer Neil Peart joined. These guys were a bunch of schlubs. Alex Lifeson, the guitarist, real name, uh, he's a Russian guy, Alexander Zivajovanovich. <laughs> you know, I don't even know, right? Getty Lee, who happens to be Jewish, Gary <laughs> Lee Weinrieb, uh, and, and then Neil, per- Neil Peart comes along, right? Uh, these guys were ugly, long-haired losers who happened to be virtuoso musicians and made this great amalgam of progressive rock and heavy metal. They rocked, but they were out in the stratosphere and thinking these heady thoughts. The last example of the real progressive rush was this album in 1978, Hemispheres, because after that, they started to uh, pare back. Getty Lee stopped singing like somebody uh, who just sucked down a tank of helium, and, and his voice came down a couple of octaves. Which and was they, a good thing. No, I, I like the helium, Getty. I <laughs> oh. really do. Uh, it's so distinctive. And they had a couple of American radio hits, you know, Permanent Waves and Moving Pictures, Tom Sawyer, all that stuff, right? But this is the last great moment of complete and utter excess. Hemispheres has got a couple of tracks. <laughs> and again, on you're it. saying this is a good thing. Oh, this is a good thing because it's good excess. I mean, there can I be just bad wanted to excess. be clear on that. Bad excess, there can be good excess. If I was to play the song Cygnus XI Book Two, you know, I mean, it would. It's like 25 minutes, and we'd have no show. I'm going to play a great pop song uh, in the midst of this album. It's called Trees, and it's one that every true Rush fan loves. Neil Peart, the drummer, wrote all the lyrics. And he was a bit of a philosopher, big devotee of Ayn Rand. He was a believer in her controversial philosophies, especially the notion of uh, the free market philosophy and how wrong it is to make everybody sink to the level of the lowest common denominator. So trees, on one level, would seem to be a kind of hippie stoner parable about trees fighting in the forest. (laughs) And, And I quote, the trouble with the maples, and they're quite convinced they're right, they say the oaks are just too lofty and they grab up all the light, right? So so that's on one level. But on the other level, it's a very complex allegory about uh, socialism versus the trade unions and and free market philosophy and how wrong it is because what happens in the end between the maples and the oaks fighting, you see, they all get cut down to one mediocre height and now nobody's tall and lofty and nobody's down in the shade. They're all just dying at the uh, woodman's (laughs) axe. I know it sounds a little stupid, but the other great thing (laughs) is that... Rush, I think, knows it's a little stupid because not only is it a very catchy song, but it breaks down in the middle and Peart does a solo on woodblocks, you know, kind of keeping in the woody theme and uh, this wonderful instrument called uh, crotales, which are, are, are tuned individual cymbals that uh, are very hip now because they're all over Yankee Hotel Foxtrot by Wilco. There aren't enough woodblock crotales <laughs> solos in rock history, much less Moog, Taurus, bass pedals and the double or triple neck guitar, whatever Lifeson's playing. I mean, this is just so far over the top that it's brilliant. And it's only three and a half minutes long. And people wonder why Canada's a punchline. 
I not because of Rush, not because of this song, Trees on Sound Opinions. <laughs> solo. I'm and as you said, you know, w- w- look at all the people Rush is uh, influencing today. They're a hipster name check, and I have to admit, I, I kind of liked Rush until you played that song and explained why you liked it, and I go, uh, Oh, no, no, I was just explicating the, the allegory. <laughs> I like it because of the Crotales. <laughs> uh, thank God next week we've got a real rock star, the film world's biggest rock star on Sound Opinions on Chicago Public Radio, Roger Ebert. A true hero for both of us. Uh, you know, we asked Roger to come in and talk about what has worked in rock movies and what hasn't as sort of a prelude to the Oscars coming up. Absolutely. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions. On the way out, we got some folks to thank. Tori Southside Malatia, our executive producer, who left before we played Rush. But he was here for the first, uh, this first time <laughs> I've seen him since we Can't believe up. he left in and missed that. Eh? I don't know. Todd Bachman, our managing producer and director. Matt Spiegel, our producer. Our associate producers are Jason Saldana and Robin Lynn who I used to like quite a bit until she started ranking on Rush. On legal help and uh, ready to post bail at any moment is Dino Armiros. Thanks to Joe Dassault for the technical assistance. Eric Rudd engineered uh, the Feist recordings in the uh, Jim and K Maybe studio. And I think that's everybody. We'll be back next week on Chicago Public Radio. Thanks for listening. Rush or no rush. <laughs>